This episode of Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Wooly Bull Highland Cow Slippers. They're shaggy, fun slippers that you can wear around your house. Trust me, they look like they dust as I walk. I've, I've left a path definitely from the studio to, uh, to the kitchen. Anyway, BunnySlippers.com. This month we will be continuing with more W.B. Du Bois, and we will be listening to The Souls of Black Folk, which is a nonfiction piece, a uh, historical piece, a piece of uh, uh, historical fact. Um, yeah, enjoy. There's There's some music in here. And n- not by me, I didn't score any of this, but enjoy The Souls of Black Folk by W.B. Du Bois. Here we go. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle. Chapter 4. Of the Meaning of Progress Willst du deine Macht verkünden, wählest sie die freie Wand sünden, stehen in deinem ewigen Haus, deiner Geister Sender aus, die uns blicken, die reinen, die nicht fühlen, die nicht weinen, nicht die zarte Jungfrau wähle, nicht der Hirten weiche Seele. Schiller. Once upon a time, I taught school in the hills of Tennessee where the broad dark veil of the Mississippi begins to roll and crumple to greet the Alleghenies. I was a Fisk student then, and all Fisk men thought that Tennessee, beyond the veil, was theirs alone. And in vacation time they sallied forth in lusty bands to meet the county school commissioners. Young and happy, I too went, and I shall not soon forget that summer, seventeen years ago. First, there was a teacher's institute at the county seat, and there distinguished guests of the superintendent taught the teachers fractions and spelling and other mysteries, white teachers in the morning, Negroes at night, a picnic now and then, and a supper, and the rough world was softened by laughter and song. I remember how, but I wonder, there came a day when all the teachers left the institute and began the hunt for schools. I learned from hearsay, for my mother was mortally afraid of firearms, that the hunting of ducks and bears and men is wonderfully interesting, but I am sure that the man who has never hunted a country school has something to learn of the pleasures of the chase. I see now the white, hot roads lazily rise and fall and wind before me under the burning July sun. I feel the deep weariness of heart and limb as ten, eight, Six miles stretch relentlessly ahead. I feel my heart sink heavily as I hear again and again, Got a teacher? Yes. So I walked on and on, 
horses were too expensive. Until I had wandered beyond railways, beyond stage lines, to a land of varmints and rattlesnakes, where the coming of a stranger was an event, and men lived and died in the shadow of one blue hill. Sprinkled over hill and dale lay cabins and farmhouses, shut out from the world by the forests and the rolling hills toward the east. There I found at last a little school. Josie told me of it. She was a thin, homely girl of twenty, with a dark brown face and thick, hard hair. I had crossed the stream at Watertown and rested under the great willows. Then I had gone to the little cabin in the lot where Josie was resting on her way to town. The gaunt farmer made me welcome, and Josie, hearing my errand, told me anxiously that they wanted a school over the hill, that but once since the war had a teacher been there, that she herself longed to learn, and thus she ran on, talking fast and loud with much earnestness and energy. Next morning I crossed the tall round hill, lingered to look at the blue and yellow mountains stretching toward the Carolinas, then plunged into the wood and came out at Josie's home. It was a dull frame cottage with four rooms, perched just below the brow of the hill amid peach trees. The father was a quiet, simple soul, calmly ignorant with no touch of vulgarity. The mother was different, strong, bustling, and energetic with a quick, restless tongue, and an ambition to live like folks. There was a crowd of children. Two boys had gone away. There remained two growing girls, a shy midget of eight, John, tall, awkward, and eighteen, Jim, younger, quicker, and better-looking, and two babies of indefinite age. Then there was Josie herself. She seemed to be at the center of the family, always busy at service or at home or berry-picking, a little nervous and inclined to scold, like her mother, yet faithful, too, like her father. She had about her a certain fineness, a shadow of an unconscious moral heroism that would willingly give all of life to make life broader deeper and fuller for her and hers. I saw much of this family afterwards and grew to love them for their honest efforts to be decent and comfortable and for their knowledge of their own ignorance. There was with them no affectation. The mother would scold the father for being so easy. Josie would roundly berate the boys for carelessness and all knew that it was a hard thing to dig a living out of a rocky side hill. I secured the school I remember the day I rode horseback out to the commissioner's house with a pleasant young white fellow who wanted the white school. The road ran down the bed of a stream. The sun laughed and the water jingled, and we rode on. Come in, said the commissioner. Come in. Have a seat. Yes, that certificate will do. Stay to dinner. What, do you want a month? Oh, thought I, this is lucky. But even then fell the awful shadow of the veil, for they ate first, then I alone. The schoolhouse was a log hut where Colonel Wheeler used to shelter his corn. It sat in a lot behind a rail fence and thorn bushes near the sweetest of springs. There was an entrance where a door once was, and within a massive, rickety fireplace. Great chinks between the logs served as windows. Furniture was scarce. A pale blackboard crouched in the corner. My desk was made of three boards, reinforced at critical points, and my chair, borrowed from the landlady, had to be returned every night. Seats for the children. These puzzled me much. I was haunted by a New England vision of neat little desks and chairs. But alas, the reality was rough plank benches without backs and at times without legs. 
They had the one virtue of making naps dangerous, possibly fatal, for the floor was not to be trusted. It was a hot morning late in July when the school opened. I trembled when I heard the patter of little feet down the dusty road and saw the growing row of dark, solemn faces and bright, eager eyes facing me. First came Josie and her brothers and sisters. The longing to know, to be a student in the great school at Nashville, hovered like a star above this child woman amid her work and worry, and she studied doggedly. There were the Dowells from their farm over toward Alexandria, Fanny with her smooth black face and wondering eyes, Martha, brown and dull, the pretty wife girl of a brother, and the younger brood. There were the Burks, two brown and yellow lads, and a tiny haughty-eyed girl. Fat Reuben's little chubby girl came with golden face and old gold hair, faithful and solemn. Fanny was on hand early, a jolly, ugly, good-hearted girl who slyly dipped snuff and looked after her little bow-legged brother. When her mother could spare her, Tildy came, a midnight beauty with starry eyes and tapering limbs, and her brother, correspondingly homely. And then the big boys, the hulking Lawrences, the lazy Neils, unfathered sons of mother and daughter, Hickman with a stoop in his shoulders, and the rest. There they sat, nearly thirty of them, on the rough benches, their faces shading from a pale cream to a deep brown, the little feet bare and swinging, the eyes full of expectation, with here and there a twinkle of mischief, and the hands grasping Webster's blue-black spelling book. I loved my school, and the fine faith the children had in the wisdom of their teacher was truly marvelous. We read and spelled together, wrote a little, picked flowers, sang, and listened to stories of the world beyond the hill. At times, the school would dwindle away, and I would start out. I would visit Mun Eddings, who lived in two very dirty rooms, and ask why little Lugene, whose flaming face seemed ever ablaze with the dark red hair uncombed, was absent all last week. Or why I missed so often the inimitable rags of Mac and Ed. Then the father, who worked Colonel Wheeler's farm on shares, would tell me how the crops needed the boys, and the thin, slovenly mother, whose face was pretty when washed, assured me that Lugene must mind the baby, but we'll start them again next week. When the Lawrences stopped, I knew that the doubts of the old folks about book learning had conquered again, and so, toiling up the hill and getting as far into the cabin as possible, I put Cicero Pro Archia Poeta into the simplest English with local applications, and usually convinced them for a week or so. On Friday nights, I often went home with some of the children, sometimes to Doc Burke's farm. He was a great, loud, thin black, ever working, and trying to buy the 75 acres of hill and dale where he lived, but people said that he would surely fail and the white folks would get it all. His wife was a magnificent Amazon with saffron face and shining hair, uncorseted and barefooted, and the children were strong and beautiful. They lived in a one-and-a-half-room cabin in the hollow of the farm near the spring. The front room was full of great, fat, white beds, scrupulously neat, and there were bad chromos on the walls and a tired center table. In the tiny back kitchen, I was often invited to take out and help myself to fried chicken and wheat biscuit, meat and corn pone, string beans and berries. 
At first, I used to be a little alarmed at the approach of bedtime in the one lone bedroom, but embarrassment was very deftly avoided. First, all the children nodded and slept and were stowed away in one great pile of goose feathers. Next, the mother and the father discreetly slipped away to the kitchen while I went to bed. Then, blowing out the dim light, they retired in the dark. In the morning, all were up and away before I thought of awaking. Across the road where Fat Reuben lived, they all went outdoors while the teacher retired because they did not boast the luxury of a kitchen. I liked to stay with the Dowels, for they had four rooms and plenty of good country fare. Uncle Bird had a small, rough farm, all woods and hills, miles from the big road. But he was full of tales. He preached now and then, and with his children, berries, horses, and wheat, he was happy and prosperous. Often, to keep the peace, I must go where life was less lovely. For instance, Tildy's mother was incorrigibly dirty. Reuben's larder was seriously limited, and herds of untamed insects wandered over the Eddings' beds. Best of all, I loved to go to Josie's and sit on the porch, eating peaches while the mother bustled and talked. How Josie had bought the sewing machine, how Josie worked at service in winter, but that four dollars a month was mighty little wages. How Josie longed to go away to school, but that it looked like they never could get far enough ahead to let her. How the crops failed and the well was yet unfinished, and finally, how mean some of the white folks were. For two summers I lived in this little world. It was dull and humdrum. The girls looked at the hill in wistful longing, and the boys fretted and haunted Alexandria. Alexandria was town, a straggling, lazy village of houses, churches, and shops, and an aristocracy of toms, dicks, and captains. Cuddled on the hill to the north was the village of the colored folks, who lived in three or four room unpainted cottages, some neat and homelike, and some dirty. The dwellings were scattered rather aimlessly, but they centered about the twin temples of the hamlet, the Methodist and the Hardshell Baptist churches. These in turn leaned gingerly on a sad colored schoolhouse. Hither my little world wended its crooked way on Sunday to meet the other worlds and gossip and wonder and make the weekly sacrifice with frenzied priest at the altar of the old-time religion. Then the soft melody and mighty cadences of Negro song fluttered and thundered. I have called my tiny community a world, and so its isolation made it. And yet there was among us but a half-awakened common consciousness, sprung from common joy and grief at burial, birth, or wedding, from a common hardship in poverty, poor land, and low wages. And, above all, from the sight of the veil that hung between us and opportunity. All this caused us to think some thoughts together, but these, when ripe for speech, were spoken in various languages. Those whose eyes, twenty-five and more years before, had seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, saw in every present hindrance or help a dark fatalism bound to bring all things right in his own good time. The mass of those to whom slavery was a dim recollection of childhood found the world a puzzling thing. It asked little of them, and they answered with little, and yet it ridiculed their offering. Such a paradox they could not understand, and therefore sank into listless indifference or shiftlessness or reckless bravado. There were, however, some, such as Josie, Jim, and Ben, to whom war, hell, and slavery were but childhood tales. 
whose young appetites had been whetted to an edge by school and story and half-awakened thought. Ill could they be content, born without and beyond the world, and their weak wings beat against their barriers, barriers of caste, of youth, of life. At last, in dangerous moments, against everything that opposed even a whim. The ten years that follow youth, the years when first the realization comes that life is leading somewhere, these were the years that passed after I left my little school. When they were passed, I came by chance once more to the walls of Fisk University, to the halls of the Chapel of Melody. As I lingered there in the joy and pain of meeting old school friends, there swept over me a sudden longing to pass again beyond the Blue Hill and to see the homes and the schools of other days and to learn how life had gone with my school children. And I went. Josie was dead, and the gray-haired mother said simply, We've had a heap of trouble since you've been away. I had feared for Jim. With a cultured parentage and a social caste to uphold him, he might have made a venturesome merchant or a West Point cadet. But here he was, angry with life and reckless, and when Fanner Durham charged him with stealing wheat, the old man had to ride fast to escape the stones which the furious fool hurled after him. They told Jim to run away, but he would not run, and the constable came that afternoon. It grieved Josie, and great awkward John walked nine miles every day to see his little brother through the bars of Lebanon jail. At last the two came back together in the dark night. The mother cooked supper, and Josie emptied her purse, and the boys stole away. Josie grew thin and silent, yet worked the more. The hill became steep for the quiet old father, and with the boys away there was little to do in the valley. Josie helped them to sell the old farm, and they moved nearer town. Brother Dennis, the carpenter, built a new house with six rooms, and Josie toiled a year in Nashville and brought back $90 to furnish the house and change it to a home. When the spring came and the birds twittered and the stream ran proud and full, Little sister Lizzie, bold and thoughtless, flushed with the passion of youth, bestowed herself on the tempter and brought home a nameless child. Josie shivered and worked on. With the vision of school days all fled, with a face wan and tired. Worked until, on a summer's day, someone married another. Then Josie crept to her mother like a hurt child and slept and sleeps. I paused to scent the breeze as I entered the valley. The Lawrences have gone, father and son forever, and the other son lazily digs in the earth to live. A new young widow rents out their cabin to fat Reuben. Reuben is a Baptist preacher now, but I fear as lazy as ever, though his cabin has three rooms. And little Ella has grown into a bouncing woman and is plowing corn on the hot hillside. There are babies plenty, and one half-witted girl. Across the valley is a house I did not know before, and there I found, rocking one baby and expecting another, one of my schoolgirls, a daughter of Uncle Bird Dowell. She looked somewhat worried with her new duties, but soon bristled into pride over her neat cabin and the tale of her thrifty husband, and the horse and cow and the farm they were planning to buy. My log schoolhouse was gone, 
In its place stood progress, and progress, I understand, is necessarily ugly. The crazy foundation stones still marked the former site of my poor little cabin. And not far away, on six weary boulders, perched a jaunty board house, perhaps twenty by thirty feet, with three windows and a door that locked. Some of the window glass was broken, and part of an old iron stove lay mournfully under the house. I peeped through the window half-reverently and found things that were more familiar. The blackboard had grown by about two feet, and the seats were still without backs. The county owns the lot now, I hear, and every year there is a session of school. As I sat by the spring and looked on the old and new, I felt glad, very glad, and yet... After two long drinks, I started on. There was the great double log house on the corner. I remembered the broken, blighted family that used to live there. The strong, hard face of the mother with its wilderness of hair rose before me. She had driven her husband away, and while I taught school, a strange man lived there, big and jovial, and people talked. I felt sure that Ben and Tildy would come to naught from such a home. But this is an odd world. For Ben is a busy farmer in Smith County, doing well too, they say, and he had cared for little Tildy until last spring when the lover married her. A hard life the lad had led, toiling for meat, and laughed at because he was homely and crooked. There was Sam Carlin, an impudent old skinflint, who had definite notions about niggers, and hired Ben a summer, and would not pay him. Then the hungry boy gathered his sacks together, and in broad daylight went into Carlin's corn, and when the hard-fisted farmer set upon him, the angry boy flew at him like a beast. Doc Burke saved a murder and a lynching that day. The story reminded me again of the Burks, and an impatience seized me to know who won in the battle, Doc or the 75 acres, for it is a hard thing to make a farm out of nothing, even in 15 years. So I hurried on, thinking of the Burks. They used to have a certain magnificent barbarism about them that I liked. They were never vulgar, never immoral, but rather rough and primitive, with an unconventionality that spent itself in loud guffaws, slaps on the back, and naps in the corner. I hurried by the cottage of the misborn Neil boys. It was empty, and they were grown into fat, lazy farmhands. I saw the home of the Hickmans, but Albert, with his stooping shoulders, had passed from the world. And then I came to the Burke's gate and peered through, the enclosure looked rough and untrimmed, and yet there were the same fences around the old farm, save to the left, where lay twenty-five other acres. And lo, the cabin in the hollow had climbed the hill and swollen to a half-finished six-room cottage. The Burks held a hundred acres, but they were still in debt. Indeed, the gaunt father who toiled night and day would scarcely be happy out of debt, being so used to it. Someday he must stop, for his massive frame is showing decline. The mother wore shoes, but the lion-like physique of other days was broken. The children had grown up. Rob, the image of his father, was loud and rough with laughter. Bertie, my school baby of six, had grown to a picture of maiden beauty, tall and tawny. Edgar is gone, said the mother, with head half-bowed. Gone to work in Nashville. He and his father couldn't agree. Little Doc, the boy born since the time of my school, took me horseback down the creek next morning toward Farmer Dowell's. The road and the stream were battling for mastery, and the stream had the better of it. 
We splashed and waited, and the merry boy perched behind me, chattered and laughed. He showed me where Simon Thompson had bought a bit of ground and a home, but his daughter, Lana, a plump brown slow girl, was not there. She had married a man and a farm twenty miles away. We wound on down the stream till we came to a gate that I did not recognize, but the boy insisted that it was Uncle Bird's. The farm was fat with the growing crop. In that little valley was a strange stillness as I rode up, for death and marriage had stolen youth and left age and childhood there. We sat and talked that night after the chores were done. Uncle Bird was grayer, and his eyes did not see so well, but he was still jovial. We talked of the acres bought, 125, of the new guest chamber added, of Martha's marrying. Then we talked of death. Fanny and Fred were gone. A shadow hung over the other daughter, and when it lifted, she was to go to Nashville to school. At last we spoke of the neighbors, and as the night fell, Uncle Bird told me how, on a night like that, Thaney came wandering back to her home over yonder to escape the blows of her husband, and next morning she died in the home that her little bow-legged brother, working and saving, had bought for their widowed mother. My journey was done, and behind me lay hill and dale and life and death. How shall man measure progress there where the dark-faced Josie lies? How many heartfuls of sorrow shall balance a bushel of wheat? How hard a thing is life to the lowly, and yet how human and real. And all this life and love and strife and failure, is it the twilight of nightfall or the flush of some faint dawning day? Thus sadly musing, I rode to Nashville in the Jim Crow car. End of chapter 4. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle. Chapter 5 Of the Wings of Atalanta. O black boy of Atlanta, but half was spoken. The slaves' chains and the masters alike are broken. The one curse of the races held both in tether. They are rising. All are rising, the black and white together. Whittier. South of the north, yet north of the south, lies the city of a hundred hills, peering out from the shadows of the past into the promise of the future. I have seen her in the morning, when the first flush of day had half roused her. She lay gray and still on the crimson soil of Georgia. Then the blue smoke began to curl from her chimneys. The tinkle of bell and scream of whistle broke the silence. The rattle and roar of busy life slowly gathered and swelled until the seething whirl of the city 
seemed a strange thing in a sleepy land. Once, they say, even Atlanta slept, dull and drowsy, at the foothills of the Alleghenies, until the iron baptism of war awakened her with its sudden waters, aroused and maddened her, and left her listening to the sea. And the sea cried to the hills, and the hills answered the sea, till the city rose like a widow and cast away her weeds and toiled for her daily bread, toiled steadily, toiled cunningly, perhaps with some bitterness, with a touch of reclame, and yet with real earnestness and real sweat. It is a hard thing to live haunted by the ghost of an untrue dream, to see the wide vision of empire fade into real ashes and dirt, to feel the pang of the conquered, and yet know that with all the bad that fell on one black day, something was vanquished that deserved to live, something killed that, in justice, had not dared to die, to know that with the right that triumphed, triumphed something of wrong, something sordid and mean, something less than the broadest and best. All this is bitter hard, and many a man and city and people have found in it excuse for sulking and brooding and listless waiting. Such are not men of the sturdier make. They of Atlanta turned resolutely toward the future, and that future held aloft vistas of purple and gold. Atlanta, queen of the cotton kingdom. Atlanta, Gateway to the land of the sun, Atlanta, the new Lachesis, spinner of web and woof for the world. So the city crowned her hundred hills with factories and stored her shops with cunning handiwork and stretched long iron ways to greet the busy Mercury in his coming. And the nation talked of her striving. Perhaps Atlanta was not christened for the winged maiden of Dolbiotia. You know the tale, how swarthy Atlanta, tall and wild, would marry only him who outraced her, and how the wily Hippomenes laid three apples of gold in the way. She fled like a shadow, paused, startled over the first apple, but even as he stretched his hand, fled again, hovered over the second, then, slipping from his hot grasp, flew over river, vale, and hill. But as she lingered over the third, his arms fell round her, and looking on each other, the blazing passion of their love profaned the sanctuary of love, and they were cursed. If Atlanta be not named for Atalanta, she ought to have been. Atalanta is not the first or the last maiden whom greed of gold has led to defile the temple of love, and not maids alone, but men in the race of life sink from the high and generous ideals of youth to the gambler's code of the burse. And in all our nation's striving, is not the gospel of work befouled by the gospel of pay? So common is this, that one half think it normal, so unquestioned, that we almost fear to question if the end of racing is not gold, if the aim of man is not rightly to be rich. And if this is the fault of America, how dire a danger lies before a new land and a new city, lest Atlanta, stooping for mere gold, shall find that gold accursed. It was no maiden's idle whim that started this hard racing. A fearful wilderness lay about the feet of that city after the war. Feudalism, poverty, the rise of the third estate, serfdom, the rebirth of law and order, and above and between all the veil of race. How heavy a journey for weary feet, 
What wings must Atalanta have to flit over all this hollow and hill, through sour wood and sullen water, and by the red waste of sun-baked clay? How fleet must Atalanta be if she will not be tempted by gold to profane the sanctuary? The sanctuary of our fathers has, to be sure, few gods. Some sneer all too few. There is the thrifty Mercury of New England, Pluto of the North, and Ceres of the West. And there, too, is the half-forgotten Apollo of the South, under whose aegis the maiden ran, and as she ran forgot him, even as there in Boeotia Venus was forgot. She forgot the old ideal of the southern gentleman, that new world heir of the grace and courtliness of patrician, knight, and noble. Forgot his honor with his foibles, his kindliness with his carelessness, and stooped to apples of gold, to men busier and sharper, thriftier, and more unscrupulous. Golden apples are beautiful. I remember the lawless days of boyhood when orchards in crimson and gold tempted me over fence and field. And, too, the merchant who has dethroned the planter is no despicable parvenu. Work and wealth are the mighty levers to lift this old new land. Thrift and toil and saving are the highways to new hopes and new possibilities. And yet the warning is needed lest the wily Hippomenes tempt Atalanta to thinking that golden apples are the goal of racing, and not mere incidents by the way. Atalanta must not lead the South to dream of material prosperity as the touchstone of all success. Already the fatal might of this idea is beginning to spread. It is replacing the finer type of Southerner with vulgar money-getters. It is burying the sweeter beauties of Southern life beneath pretense and ostentation. For every social ill, the panacea of wealth has been urged, wealth to overthrow the remains of the slave feudalism, wealth to raise the cracker third estate, wealth to employ the black serfs, and the prospect of wealth to keep them working, wealth as the end and aim of politics, and as the legal tender for law and order, and finally, instead of truth, beauty, and goodness, wealth as the ideal of the public school. Not only is this true in the world which Atlanta typifies, but it is threatening to be true of a world beneath and beyond that world, the black world beyond the veil. Today it makes little difference to Atlanta, to the South, what the Negro thinks or dreams or wills. In the soul life of the land, he is today and naturally will long remain unthought of, half forgotten. And yet when he does come to think and will and do for himself, and let no man dream that day will never come, then the part he plays will not be one of sudden learning, but words and thoughts he has been taught to lisp in his race childhood. Today, the ferment of his striving toward self-realization is to the strife of the white world like a wheel within a wheel. Beyond the veil are smaller but like problems of ideals, of leaders and the led, of serfdom, of poverty, of order and subordination, and through all, the veil of race. Few know of these problems, few who know notice them, and yet there they are, awaiting student, artist, and seer, a field for somebody sometime to discover. Hither has the temptation of Hippomenes penetrated. Already in this smaller world, which now indirectly and anon directly must influence the larger for good or ill, the habit is forming of interpreting the world in dollars. The old leaders of Negro opinion in the little groups where there is a Negro social consciousness, are being replaced by new. Neither the black preacher nor the black teacher leads as he did two decades ago. Into their places are pushing the farmers and gardeners, 
the well-paid porters and artisans, the businessmen, all those with property and money. And with all this change, so curiously parallel to that of the other world, goes to the same inevitable change in ideals. The South laments today the slow, steady disappearance of a certain type of Negro, the faithful, courteous slave of other days with his incorruptible honesty and dignified humility. He is passing away just as surely as the old type of Southern gentleman is passing, and from not dissimilar causes. The sudden transformation of a fair, far-off ideal of freedom into the hard reality of breadwinning and the consequent deification of bread. In the black world, the preacher and teacher embodied once the ideals of this people, the strife for another and a juster world, the vague dream of righteousness, the mystery of knowing. But today the danger is that these ideals, with their simple beauty and weird inspiration, will suddenly sink to a question of cash and a lust for gold. Here stands this black young Atalanta, girding herself for the race that must be run. And if her eyes be still toward the hills and sky as in the days of old, then we may look for noble running. But what if some ruthless or wily or even thoughtless Hippomenes lay golden apples before her? What if the Negro people be wooed from a strife for righteousness, from a love of knowing, to regard dollars as the be-all and end-all of life? What if to the mammonism of America be added the rising mammonism of the reborn South? and the mammonism of this South be reinforced by the budding mammonism of its half-wakened black millions? Whither, then, is the new world quest of goodness and beauty and truth gone glimmering? Must this and that fair flower of freedom, which, despite the jeers of latter-day striplings, sprung from our father's blood, must that, too, degenerate into a dusty quest of gold, into lawless lust with Hippomenes, The hundred hills of Atlanta are not all crowned with factories. On one, toward the west, the setting sun throws three buildings in bold relief against the sky. The beauty of the group lies in its simple unity, a broad lawn of green rising from the red street and mingled roses and peaches. North and south, two plain and stately halls, and in the midst, half-hidden in ivy, a larger building, boldly graceful, sparingly decorated, and with one low spire. It is a restful group. One never looks for more. It is all here, all intelligible. There I live, and there I hear from day to day the low hum of restful life. In winter's twilight, when the red sun glows, I can see the dark figures pass between the halls to the music of the night bell. In the morning, when the sun is golden, the clang of the day bell brings the hurry and laughter of three hundred young hearts from hall and street and from the busy city below, children all dark and heavy-haired, to join their clear young voices in the music of the morning sacrifice. In a half-dozen classrooms they gather then, here to follow the love song of Dido, here to listen to the tale of Troy divine, there to wander among the stars, there to wander among men and nations and elsewhere other well-worn ways of knowing this queer world. Nothing new, no time-saving devices, simply old-time glorified methods of delving for truth and searching out the hidden beauties of life and learning the good of living. The riddle of existence is the college curriculum that was laid before the pharaohs, that was taught in the groves by Plato, 
that form the trivium and quadrivium and is today laid before the freedmen's sons by Atlanta University. And this course of study will not change. Its methods will grow more deft and effectual, its content richer by toil of scholar and sight of seer, but the true college will ever have one goal, not to earn meat, but to know the end and aim of that life which meat nourishes. The vision of life that rises before these dark eyes has in it nothing mean or selfish. Not at Oxford or at Leipzig, not at Yale or Columbia, is there an air of higher resolve or more unfettered striving. The determination to realize for men, both black and white, the broadest possibilities of life, to seek the better and the best, to spread with their own hands the gospel of sacrifice, all this is the burden of their talk and dream. Here, amid a wide desert of caste and proscription, amid the heart-hurting slights and jars and vagaries of a deep race dislike, lies this green oasis where hot anger cools and the bitterness of disappointment is sweetened by the springs and breezes of Parnassus. And here men may lie and listen and learn of a future fuller than the past and hear the voice of time. And beren sollst du, sollst and beren. They made their mistakes, those who planted Fisk and Howard and Atlanta before the smoke of battle had lifted. They made their mistakes. But those mistakes were not the things at which we lately laughed somewhat uproariously. They were right when they sought to found a new educational system upon the university. Where, forsooth, shall we ground knowledge, save on the broadest and deepest knowledge? The roots of the tree, rather than the leaves, are the sources of its life. And from the dawn of history, from Academist to Cambridge, the culture of the university has been the broad foundation stone on which is built the kindergarten's ABC. But these builders did make a mistake in minimizing the gravity of the problem before them, in thinking it a matter of years and decades, in therefore building quickly and laying their foundation carelessly and lowering the standard of knowing, until they had scattered haphazard through the South some dozen poorly equipped high schools and miscalled them universities. They forgot, too, just as their successors are forgetting, the rule of inequality, that of the million black youth, some were fitted to know and some to dig, that some had the talent and capacity of university men and some the talent and capacity of blacksmiths, and that true training meant neither that all should be college men nor all artisans, but that the one should be made a missionary of culture to an untaught people, and the other a free workman among serfs. And to seek to make the blacksmith a scholar is almost as silly as the more modern scheme of making the scholar a blacksmith. Almost, but not quite. The function of the university is not simply to teach breadwinning, or to furnish teachers for the public schools, or to be a center of polite society. It is above all to be the organ of that fine adjustment between real life and the growing knowledge of life an adjustment which forms the secret of civilization. Such an institution the South of today sorely needs. She has religion, earnest, bigoted, religion that on both sides of the veil often omits the Sixth, Seventh, and Eighth Commandments but substitutes a dozen supplementary ones. She has, as Atlanta shows, growing thrift and love of toil, but she lacks that broad knowledge of what the world knows and knew of human living and doing, which she may apply to the thousand problems of real life today confronting her. 
The need of the South is knowledge and culture, not in dainty limited quantity as before the war, but in broad busy abundance in the world of work. And until she has this, not all the apples of Hesperides, be they golden and bejeweled, can save her from the curse of the Boeotian lovers. The wings of Atalanta are the coming universities of the South. They alone can bear the maiden past the temptation of golden fruit. They will not guide her flying feet away from the cotton and gold, for, ah, thoughtful Hippomenes, do not the apples lie in the very way of life? But they will guide her over and beyond them and leave her kneeling in the sanctuary of truth and freedom and broad humanity, virgin and undefiled. Sadly did the old South err in human education, despising the education of the masses and niggardly in the support of colleges. Her ancient university foundations dwindled and withered under the foul breath of slavery, and even since the war they have fought a failing fight for life in the tainted air of social unrest and commercial selfishness, stunted by the death of criticism and starving for lack of broadly cultured men. And if this is the white South's need and danger, how much heavier the danger and need of the freedmen's sons, how pressing here the need of broad ideals and true culture, the conservation of soul from sordid aims and petty passions. Let us build the Southern University. William and Mary, Trinity, Georgia, Texas, Tulane, Vanderbilt, and the others, fit to live. Let us build, too, the Negro universities. Fisk, whose foundation was ever broad. Howard, at the heart of the nation. Atlanta, at Atlanta, whose ideal of scholarship has been held above the temptation of numbers. Why not here, and perhaps elsewhere, plant deeply and for all time centers of learning and living, colleges that yearly would send into the life of the South a few white men and a few black men of broad culture, Catholic tolerance, and trained ability, joining their hands to other hands and giving to this squabble of the races a decent and dignified peace. Patience, humility, manners, and taste. Common schools and kindergartens. Industrial and technical schools. Literature and tolerance. All these spring from knowledge and culture. The children of the university. So must men and nations build. Not otherwise. Not upside down. Teach workers to work. A wise saying. Wise when applied to German boys and American girls. Wiser when said of Negro boys, for they have less knowledge of working and none to teach them. Teach thinkers to think, a needed knowledge in a day of loose and careless logic, and they whose lot is gravest must have the carefulest training to think aright. If these things are so, how foolish to ask what is the best education for one or seven or sixty million souls. Shall we teach them trades or train them in liberal arts? Neither and both. Teach the workers to work and the thinkers to think. Make carpenters of carpenters and philosophers of philosophers and fops of fools. Nor can we pause here. We are training not isolated men, but a living group of men, nay, a group within a group. And the final product of our training must be neither a psychologist nor a brick mason, but a man. And to make men, we must have ideals, broad, pure, and inspiring ends of living. Not sordid money-getting, 
not apples of gold. The worker must work for the glory of his handiwork, not simply for pay. The thinker must think for truth, not for fame. And all this is gained only by human strife and longing, by ceaseless training and education, by founding right on righteousness and truth on the unhampered search for truth, by founding the common school on the university and the industrial school on the common school, and weaving thus a system, not a distortion, and bringing a birth, not an abortion. When night falls on the city of a hundred hills, a wind gathers itself from the seas and comes murmuring westward, and at its bidding, the smoke of the drowsy factories sweeps down upon the mighty city and covers it like a pall, while yonder at the university the stars twinkle above Stone Hall. And they say that yon gray mist is the tunic of Atalanta, pausing over her golden apples. Fly, my maiden, fly. For yonder comes Hippomenes. End of chapter 5